Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So we just had a milestone in our family. My youngest son turned eight, and uh, for him, he was so excited because that meant he did not have to be in a car seat in the back seat. (laughs) Eight or 80 pounds, right? The other day, we were driving home, and... uh, he was able to finally look over the seat because he was in the other side. He got to move because his car seat went there. He was able to look at the other side and see how fast I was driving. <laughs> and uh, he said, Dad, the speed limit, and I'm not going to tell you where I was driving, but he said, Dad, the speed limit is this and you're driving this. I was like, well, you're right. And so I just slowed down and tried to abide by the speed limit. I tell you that because I wonder how many of you in the room have had a place to go and you knew you were on the cusp of being late or you were going to be late and somebody was in front of you. (laughs) You know, in your own mind, they're driving underneath the speed limit, but realistically, all they're doing is driving the speed limit. And you're in a hurry, and you're angsty and angry, and you want them to move out of the way. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But probably all of us have been there. The reality is, we have a tendency to live each part of our day in our own little worlds. Kind of locked in to what affects me and my situations or you and your situations, that's the way we operate. We interpret experiences, uh, delays, circumstances, and frustrations in light of how they affect us. They embarrass us. Do they frustrate us? Do they get in the way of what we think we're trying to accomplish? That's the way, all too often, we try to operate. That's not new, by the way, because if you read through the pages of Scripture, you'll find character after character, individual after individual, who responded in very similar ways. Their responses were to the circumstances around them, either in frustration, sometimes in anger, sometimes in disappointment. If you read through certain instances, you get, you get the know-it-alls like in Job and Job's friends, or you get gossips and people who are frustrated. And we are able to identify those folks. Here's what I want us to recognize, though. As we continue in our study through the doctrine of God, that is not the way that we are supposed to perceive our world. We're not to look at the circumstances around us, the situations we're in, or life itself through the lens of how it affects us. That's not the proper perspective in the, on the world. It's not a proper perspective on the immorality in the world. It's not a proper perspective on our interaction with the world. In fact, a proper perspective on God is the only way that we can accurately view ourselves and the world. If there is nothing else that we get out of a doctrinal study about God... If there's nothing else that we get out of a worship service, if there's nothing else that we get out of a sermon, if there's nothing else that we get out of reading the Bible, if there's nothing else but a proper view of God, then that is plenty enough for us to get 
out of a scripture, a sermon, a talk, or any experience that we have. In fact, the most important thing that can ever happen in any of our lives is for us to perceive God correctly. Correctly as he's revealed himself. There's nothing more important. In fact, one of the greatest problems with Christianity, with theology, with world religions, one of the greatest problems in all of those spheres is that there are places and there are churches and there are theologies that misconstrue the doctrine of God. Talk about God as being something that he's not. Plenty of mistakes have happened. In fact, as we move forward next week and in the weeks after, we're going to highlight some of those places where false teachers, if you you want to go that far with 1 Timothy, or just incorrect theology has shaped the way that we perceive God. What I want us to do, though, is to not so much dive into those false notions as let's look at what God says about himself from the pages of Scripture and let's see how we can discern an accurate view of God based on what he says to us. So tonight what we're going to do is look at God's titles, God's names, and how he discloses himself. What does he say about himself? Next week, we're going to look at the topics of transcendence and eminence. God being greater than and God being in our world. Those are beautiful perspectives for us to realize the glory and the wonder of God. Tonight, we're very simply going to walk through some of God's names. Well, let me be more accurate. Some of God's titles in one of his names. So if you will, look in your handout, and I'm going to give you several to fill in. I'll give you some scripture references that we'll look at as well. So the first name is Elohim, and that accurately should be a title. Uh, When we use the word God, we're using a word in reference most of the time, right, to the God of the Bible. But that is a general English term, and that word God can be used with a big G, referring to the one true God, that word God can be used uh, in, in a little g sense, referencing any deity of any religious system whatsoever. It's a title. Elohim in the Old Testament is a title for God. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The word for God used in Genesis 1.1 is Elohim. In the Hebrew language, Elohim is plural, meaning that it carries with it the idea of more or a host or the greatest. It doesn't necessarily mean there are multiple deities. It's not polytheism, though in other religious contexts, Elohim is used in that sense. When it's referring to God in the Old Testament, though, it's not so much the idea that he's more than one. The Lord is one. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. There is an undergirding uh, picture of the plurality uh, of that word Elohim that, that kind of fits in with the Trinity. But what I want you to get and think about in that sense is that it means that God is the greatest, the biggest, the most glorious. There's nothing greater and more glorious than God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. Elohim is also the word that's used in Genesis 1.26 where the scripture says, and God said, Elohim said, let us, let us make man in our image. And so there is a, an initial, at least um, uh, hint at the doctrine of the Trinity even found in Genesis 1.26. That's Elohim. And that is 
probably the most common word for God used in the entirety of the Old Testament. It's a beautiful word, but it's a generic term. It's a generic, probably better, it would be a title than it is a name. The next uh, title on your list is L, which if you've paid any attention to language and grammar, you know what that is. It's the singular form for Elohim. So it is simply the, the title for God in a singular fashion. Most of the time in the Old Testament, El is used with an action verb that describes something that God does. In other words, it, it's an explanation of how God interacts or intervenes or works in the world around us. Let me give you an example. If you move just down to the next line, El Shaddai... El Shaddai is God is the Almighty. In fact, we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 17 because we're going to read from Genesis chapter 16 in a moment as well. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1 is a place where this, uh, this particular title for God is used. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And said to him, so this is God's own self-introduction to Abraham, I am God Almighty, that is El Shaddai, that's who I am. Walk before me and be blameless. So God introduces himself as God, deity, in a, in a, uh, in, in a title sense, Almighty, I have power over everything. I am El Shaddai, that's who God describes himself to be there to Abraham. So El Shaddai, God Almighty. A beautiful descriptor of God uh, comes in the chapter previous to that. It's in, uh, it's El Roy, and it is that God sees. God sees. Now, this is a, a fascinating passage of scripture for several reasons. If you will pick up um, in verse 11, this is... A conversation that the angel of the Lord had with Hagar. The angel of the Lord said to her, that's to Hagar, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over uh, against all his kinsmen. So she called, she called, notice this, she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. That's El Roy in the uh, Hebrew language. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Or I have witnessed, I have seen the one who sees me in a literal fashion. Therefore, the well there was called Bir Laharoi, which lies between Kadesh and Bered. And that word, Bir Laharoi, means the God who sees. Or it was here where God saw. The reason that's fascinating is because I'm not sure there's any other place in all of the Bible where a person gives God a name. Abraham doesn't give God a name. God gives Abraham a name for himself. Moses doesn't give God a name. God gives a name to Moses for himself. Noah doesn't give God a name. Adam doesn't give God a name. And Adam named all the uh, animals. Uh, Isaiah doesn't give God a name. All of the prophets, all of the great glorious characters all throughout the Bible, none of them give God a name. 
except Hagar. And if you know the story of Hagar, then it is a fascinatingly um, odd story, for lack of a better word. Okay, so God had promised Abram and Sarah a child, and God had not come through on that promise to that point in their lives. Abraham was in his 80s, Sarah was up there in years as well, no child, no child, God hadn't fulfilled his promise, and so Sarah did what we have a tendency to do, she tried to insert herself into the situation to bring God's promise about her own way. Uh, anytime we do that, we make matters worse rather than make matters better. And so she gave her handmaiden to Sarah, or her handmaiden Hagar to Abram, and said, "You have a child by my handmaiden, and we will we will consider him a child of the promise." And so, I mean, there's all kind of stuff in that, right? I mean, you've got a wife giving her handmaiden to her husband. I mean, there's just, there's jealousy there. There's infidelity there. At least as we look at it, thousands of years removed, infidelity wasn't the same expectation of fidelity in the way we see it and sense it looking at, you know, uh, uh, 1,500 years of biblical history and seeing all the testimony about Scripture and what the Scripture says about marriage, we have a different concept. I think a right concept, a, a clear concept of what marriage is supposed to be. I don't think Sarah had that concept. And so she gave her handmaiden to Abram. She got pregnant. And guess what Sarah did? Do you remember the story? She got mad about it. Okay? Let me just, let me, there, there's a practical piece of advice there. When we try to bring God's promises about for ourselves, we're usually going to get mad at the problems we cause. Okay? So we don't make things better when we insert ourselves in the situations. It's just not generally what happens. So Sarah got mad at the situation that she started. Okay? And she got so mad at the situation that she started that she essentially ran Hagar off. Hagar said, I'm done with this. I don't like this. I don't want to be here. And so she ran away into the wilderness. And here's what's beautiful. The angel of the Lord found Hagar where she was. God came to Hagar. Now here's why this is really important for us as, as Christians and why it is really important for us to grasp the self-disclosure of God as he reveals himself to us in Scripture. God did not come to Hagar because she was good. In fact, if you want to think about all of the, all of the challenges around Hagar, I mean, there, there are many, right? She's an Egyptian. She's, she's not a part of the chosen family. She's a handmaiden. She's a servant. She went to Abraham because her her, her kind of master, Sarah, told her, this is what you're going to go do. So she's under the thumb of somebody. She's under control. And then she gets pregnant. And, and of course, that's going to create tension. It already has. Sarah is jealous of her. So she runs away. How is she going to have a child? How is she going to take care of this child? All of these tensions are present in the text. And God shows up. And God shows up and speaks to her graciously. Notice what he says. You are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord, and we'll get to that word in a moment, the Lord has listened to your affliction. The Lord knows. He knows 
that he's chosen Abraham and Sarah, or at this time, Abram and Sarah. Their names haven't been changed yet. Abram and Sarah. He knows he's chosen them, but he knows the affliction and why the affliction has happened. He knows all that. The Lord has seen it, and he shall be a wild donkey of a man, Ishmael, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy, you are a God who sees. You are a God who sees me. Here's why that's important. God's not waiting on you to be right with him before he notices you. None of us were where we needed where were where we needed to be right in righteousness and in spiritual our spiritual lives before God came and showed up and saw us where we were. That's encouraging. Some of you, if you think back to your own testimony, you could say, Man, I really identify with Hagar. I wasn't where I needed to be. I, I was in a mess of a situation, a mess that someone else created for me. I mean, Sarah created Hagar's mess. She was, she, she was responsible for her part in the play, for her act in the play, but Sarah was the one who created her mess. And then Hagar's living in the middle of a mess, and still God shows up and says, I see you. There's a picture of grace there. There's a picture of God's intervention there. It's a reflection of God's glory and of God's wonder there. And he let an Egyptian handmaiden underneath Abram and Sarah name him. You are the God who sees. Elroy. He's a God who sees. He sees us where we are. Beautiful picture. Adonai is the next name. It's the Hebrew word uh, for Lord. It's found in Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. Oftentimes it is used uh, to, to connect Lord God. You'll see that in many places in the Old Testament. Adonai is a part of that construction. An interesting thing about the word Adonai is as we move forward and look at the personal name for God that that he's going to give to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Adonai was the name or the word, the the title rather, that was put in place of the personal name for God. In other words, many times in the Old Testament when a scribe would read through the Old Testament and come to the personal name for God, they wouldn't speak the personal name for God. They would speak Adonai as a substitute for the personal name for God because they revered God's personal name, his spoken name to Abraham so much that they wouldn't even say it out loud. That's Adonai. So let's look at Yahweh, which is found in Exodus chapter 3. I would invite you to turn there. There's some wonderful insights from Exodus chapter 3 about the name of the Lord, who he is. By the way, just a a note when you're reading through Scripture, when you read through the Old Testament in particular, and you see LORD in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, O-R-N-D being capital, that is where in the Hebrew text the word Yahweh is found, or in our English transliteration, Jehovah. So let's pick up and begin reading in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, and again, that's Yahweh there, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. 
When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. One of the things I want you to catch, if you pay attention to Exodus 3, on multiple occasions, God introduces himself in that very construction. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus would say in the New Testament that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, using that very same uh, uh, statement from who God was. And what God is saying to Moses is that the God of the patriarchs, the, the, the God whom Abraham worshipped, the God whom Isaac worshipped and dug wells, the God whom Jacob worshipped and was renamed Israel, that is the God that I am. In other words, he's making a direct connection between the earliest parts of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and his introduction here to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He knows and cares about this family that he has chosen. That's what God is saying. And what's fascinating for us is that the God of the Bible is not just... uh, We're doing a doctrinal study. So we're working through theology, right? And some of you have picked up Millard Erickson's book, Introducing Christian Doctrine. And I would encourage that. I would encourage you to read along with me, read along with this series. Some of what I'm going to talk about is going to kind of overlap with what Erickson does. But what is fascinating about God is that he did not give us a theology textbook when he revealed himself to us. He gave us a narrative account of history. The who's and the why's and the people of history and his intervention in their stories. Why did he do that? I think there are a whole lot of reasons he did that. Not the least of which is that he is letting us know that the God whom we are trying to learn about today is not a tribal God. He's not a God who's just tied to a geography. He's not a God who's just tied to a place. He's a God who's intervened in human history. This isn't, just, this isn't just any old deity. This isn't just any God that could be described by any of the other deities of the land. This is a God who's intervened in human history. He has a place, a, a, the place, the premier place in all the events that are going on in the world. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. By the way, isn't that fascinating? I have surely seen Hagar was an Egyptian under Sarah, and and she identified the Lord as the one who sees her, and the Lord is the one who has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know they're suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's a fascinating introduction. Wouldn't you love it for God to just show up and say, here's your task? Here's what you're you're going to do. Now, some of you have a few years left to wait before God does that. You do know that Moses was 80 when this took place. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt and trying to accomplish God's plan his own way. 
And then he spent 40 years in the wilderness experiencing isolation and separation uh, from his own ego and his own plans. And then God showed up and had the audacity to say to, Pharaoh, to, to Moses, rather, you're going to go bring my people out. I mean, that's, that's because of a burning bush. It's a pretty fascinating conversation. Moses asks a fascinating question. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But he said, the Lord said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, that's a fantastic sign. When we ask for signs from God, we ask for a sign from God. We want a sign that tells us what we're supposed to do. Remember Gideon's fleece? Hey, if I put the fleece out tonight, let it be covered with dew. If I put it out tomorrow night, let it not be covered with dew, right? That was something tangible. God's sign to Moses was, when I've accomplished my purposes, you'll be right back here worshiping me on the mountain. But that would mean that Moses had to leave and go back and bring the people of Israel out. I mean, the, the, the affirmation of God's testimony wasn't going to happen for months down the road, if not longer than that. But that's what God said his son was. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? The reason that's fascinating is because at no point in human history to this place in history had God self-identified, here is my name. Even the words we've already used are titles. They might be descriptors, they might be explanations of what God does, but they're not God's name as in God has said, this is who I am, this is the name I have. And there are several reasons for that. In uh, ancient uh, cultures, a name gave you power over that person. So when you knew the name of a person, you could call that name out and it would give you power over them. That's why if you move forward into the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Baal are crying out, Oh Baal, Oh Baal, Oh Baal. They knew the name of their God. And so they expected that knowing the name of their God gave them the right to call on the name of that God so that God would answer to them. Think genie in a bottle. A God that does what we ask because we have power over that God. Now, God knew this. He knew the tendency of people with the names of deities. Knew that for sure. And God, when he gave his name to Moses, isn't giving Moses a talisman. He's not giving Moses power over him. Notice what he says when he introduces himself. Say this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. It's an odd construction in the, in, it's Yahweh in the Hebrew language. It doesn't include a vowel. And for many in the Hebrew, uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, they wouldn't even write the name out, Yahweh. They would write the name rather than speak the name uh, because of the reverence and the awe that they had for that. Essentially, it means that God is. I am is what God is saying. There is no other. He, he's not like any other God. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have a name that we call him. He is that he is. He is the only one that ever will be. He is unique 
And that's the name that he gives to Moses and the name that he goes by in all of the Old Testament. And what you'll find is that throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the first five books of the Bible, over and over and over again, the word Lord in all capitalization is used in reference to who God is. Moses is using that to describe the name of God. And it is a personal name. Meaning it's not just something God wants us to reflect on that, okay, I know his name like I know, like I know Vince, your name, and you know my name. It's not that. It's not, it's not on equal footing we're related to one another by knowing our names. It's that God is so far different. And, and even that didn't, by the way, it did not uh, confirm for, for Moses. He goes on to say... Um, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, I am that I am, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise to bring you into the land of promise. He said that over again, over and over again. And of course, you know the story of Moses. Moses like, I'm not sure that I can do that. I'm not sure that that's enough. And he had to throw down the staff to become a snake. And we're not going to spend all our time dealing with Moses' inter- interaction. I want us to get the idea that God introduced himself as the I am. The only one that ever is. I know I'm jumping ahead a, f- a few months actually but when you get to the New Testament and Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's directly referencing the fact that God has said in the Old Testament that he is the I am. And Jesus is making a direct allusion or direct claim to deity. So God is the I am. He is Yahweh. He is a God to be known. He is a God that we can have relationship with. Let me give you a couple more titles that are, that are given couple of New Testament titles, just so you know where we are in the New Testament as well. Theos is the Greek word for God. It's the general term for God, just like Elohim or El is the general term for God in the Old Testament language, Hebrew language. You can read that in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was Theos. Kurios is the Greek word for Lord. It's used over and over. The Lord Jesus Christ, Kurios is the word Lord. That explains that or defines that there in the New Testament. Let me read to you a quote from uh, Francis Schaeffer in his fan, uh, fantastic work, The God Who Is There. Um, who is this God we're talking about? The God who is there is the God who is there, according to the scriptures, is the personal infinite God. Meaning he's like no other. There there, there aren't any other references. There aren't any other gods that fit in his same category, is what Schaefer is saying. There's no other god like this god. It is ridiculous to say that all religions teach the same things when they disagree at the fundamental point as to what God is like. The gods of the East are infinite by definition. The definition being God is all that is. This is the pan-everything-ism God. The gods of the West have tended to be personal but limited. Such were the gods of the Greeks, Romans, and Germans. But the God of the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, is the infinite personal God. 
And, and this is a fascinating study. If you want to look at world religions and, and look at the deities that are all described all over the world. There are some that are personal and that are relatable. And there are some that are infinite. But the only one that is both infinite and personal described in the text that, dis, that, that explains him is the God of the Bible. Meaning that he, is, he invites us to know him. But he invites us to know him for who he is. Meaning that he's infinite. He's absolutely in control. There's no one else like him. He's able to intervene. And the testimony of scripture reveals that over and over again. Let me give you several takeaways and we'll close up for tonight. Takeaway number one. The Lord as he reveals himself in his titles and names. Is the primary focus of theological revelation. There's nothing more important that we grasp from the Bible than God. Uh, over the years, I, I have read all sort of uh, books on preaching. What do you say when you preach? What do you talk about when you preach? And some, some preachers tell you that we need to be more practical and we need to be felt needs oriented. And the Bible does address plenty of the things that affect you and I. Um, but the truly the most practical thing about the Bible is that we know God. There's nothing more important than that. There's nothing more important than you and I recognizing from the pages of Scripture who God claims to be, meaning that then He has authority over our lives. He dictates to us what we're to do and who we're to be. In fact, the gospel doesn't begin in the New Testament with Jesus' death on the cross. The gospel doesn't even begin in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve sinned against God. The gospel begins in Genesis chapter 1 where God is. The only way that our sin makes sense is in understanding that our sin is a rejection of God's authority and God's holiness. God is in control. He is Lord. He is right and he is righteous. In fact, uh, one, of the, one of the things that reflects this is how the Old Testament saints reflected on the name of God. They didn't speak it. They didn't write it. They said something in its place because of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They were terrified that they would speak God's name in a way that would diminish his glory and his grandeur. And what do we see in our world today? We see, see and hear all over the place taking the name of the Lord in vain. We hate that. I despise hearing it. You do too. But just as a note of conviction, how many times have we come to church and sung praises to the Lord with no further thought about the name of the Lord that we used. How many times have we, out of carelessness, not a lack of reverence. I don't mean that we, we miss who God is, but out of carelessness, used God's name and not really recognized who we're talking about and who we're talking to. If you get nothing else out of the Bible, if nothing else happens during our Wednesday night studies, if you get a grander picture of God, then I feel like I've succeeded. I want us, as we walk away from the text of Scripture, I want us to think God is so far more glorious and great than we can imagine. 
He's got to be feared. He's got to be worshipped. He's got to be adored. He's got to be praised. And the entirety of our lives should be lived in relation not to what we see and feel and experience, not to our circumstances, not to our complaints or frustrations, not even to the disastrous things that are going on in the world around, around us. Our lives are to be lived in relation to God. The Lord, the one who is in control, the one who is righteous, the one who is glorious, the one who is above all things. Uh, Let me give you a second takeaway. The Lord, as he reveals himself to be sovereign, is worthy of fear and trust. Um, Eddie asked me a question uh, a few weeks back as we were working through this study. Are we going to get to the... To, to discuss providence and sovereignty and God's intervention in the world. And yes, we are. We're going to do that on a number of occasions throughout our study. We'll pick up on that specifically in August when we come back after our summer break. And then we'll get into that as we talk about Jesus' role. And specifically, we'll get into those questions as we work through the doctrine of salvation. But when I say God is sovereign, I mean that he's absolutely in charge. There's no one else like him. There's a verse of scripture that I read this past week in my devotions. It's from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, that is Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of armies is the picture there. He's the one who's absolutely in control. The Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Let me read it in context, verse 12. The Lord saying to Isaiah, here's what you're not supposed to do. Y'all get this. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Why did God say that to Isaiah? Because Isaiah was looking around at all of the frustrations, lies, misinformation, whatever you want to call it that was happening, uh, what was that, 2,700 years ago during Isaiah's time? And those things were causing him to fear. And the Lord said to Isaiah, stop. Stop paying attention to all this other stuff. Realize that I'm holy. Realize that I'm the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. I'm in charge. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. Fear me. Worship me. Reverence me. So the next time you pick up your smartphone and you read through the news headlines and you get frustrated and angry, just like I do when I read through news headlines, you're like, my goodness, how can they see that and interpret it that way? And even the folks that I tend to think like, and you know those folks that you read that you tend to think like, and, and you, 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 you kind of you like their take on things, even that stuff... If you're a Fox News person or a Blaze person, God bless you if you're MSNBC or CNN or whatever else. And that's okay if you are. I, I'll, you know, there, there's a place for all of us in the kingdom of God, whatever news source you listen to. I'm going to tell you something. You pay attention to that too much, you know what you're going to do? Oh my gosh, the world is ending and, and what in the world's going to happen? And Might it end? Yeah, it's going to end one day. Just want you to know that it is. But... The reason we don't have to fear is because he's the Lord of hosts. What Isaiah is telling us is that sometimes, and probably more than sometimes, we need to shut the screen off, set the news down, and read about the one who doesn't change. You know what will change the way that we interact with people around us? Change the way we interact with people around us if we fear the Lord and realize that he's sovereign. 
I'm going to tell you something. The people that you work with and the people that you interact with at schools and the people that you're around on a daily basis, you know what they need to see? They need to see Christians that are not putting their hope in political allies or alignment. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. There is. But they need to see Christians that have a peace that is supernatural because we have a close relationship with the living God who's in control. Who we recognize, no matter what the Supreme Court says, no matter what the president says, no matter what politics tell us, no matter what wars happen, we can gather at church and sing praises to his name and say we love the Lord because he is the Lord of hosts. And here's what's glorious. This is the third one, our takeaway. The Lord, as he reveals himself to be personal, invites us to know him. I'm going to deal with this next week, so I'm not going to dive into a lot of this tonight. But our God is often, let me, let me say it this way. The God that we perceive in our minds is often too small. One of our biggest problems as Christians is that the God that we think we're worshiping is not the God who is because the God we think we're worshiping is way smaller than the God who is. We'll deal with that next week. But just think about this. The God who is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, the God who saw all of that, the God who witnessed all of those events and intervened in the situation of the people of Israel, the God who sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, the God who called Abraham out from nowhere, Ur, in order to lead him into a promised land, the God who promised him Isaac, and he had a kid when he was 100 years old. I mean, that, there's just, I mean, there are things in the Old Testament that should stagger us in what God did. That God saw Hagar. The lady that didn't fit the storyline. The outcast. The one that was, that was apart from the major story. The one who in the, in the New Testament. I mean Paul doesn't have a whole lot of great things to say about Hagar. Uh, Sarah's the, the woman of the promise. Hagar is the woman uh, who's not of the promise. And there, he uses that as an illustration for describing our own sinfulness. And God's intervention in terms of promise. That one is one that God saw. And she got to say that God saw her. The God who made everything. The God who is far bigger than we could ever imagine. The God who is grander than you could ever dream. And, and you can think the biggest thoughts that you could possibly think about God. And they're not big enough. They're not big enough in terms of their accuracy about who really God is. And yet that God wants to talk to you through the pages of scripture and hear you pray. That should stagger us. We should never lose sight of the fact that when we bowed and prayed, it doesn't matter what we brought in. It doesn't matter what concerns or frustrations. When we sang, God was hearing. He was present in our praises. He was listening to our prayers. And he wants you to know him. That should blow our minds. And I hope as we continue our study of God on Wednesday nights... I, I hope that more than anything you get out of it, you get a little closer to knowing who God is, who God really is, and what he wants for you and what he wants for me. And the closer we get to him, the more we fear him, like he told Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8, the less we'll be afraid of all the other stuff that's out there. 
Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you for the privilege of knowing you. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of seeing that you see us. Lord, none of us deserved you to turn your attention on us. We have all sinned against you. We have all been guilty of breaking your law. And yet, at some point in our past, you turned your attention to us in a way that showed us our flaws and our sins and that showed us your glory and your holiness. And in your kindness and in your mercy, you reached down and brought us salvation and gave us the privilege of knowing you. Too often, Heavenly Father, what happens for us as believers is we know that. We remember that. We can reflect on that. But it has become too familiar to us. Father, we ask that you forgive us for that. We ask that you forgive us for letting the gathered worship experience at church become mundane. We ask that you forgive us for when we open up the Bible, we, we read it as if we're reading the newspaper. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you forgive us for thinking that your name is all too much like the other names that we know. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you forgive us for praying like you don't hear and asking like we don't believe you'll do anything about what we pray. Father, we are guilty of seeing you as less than you are. And I ask that you forgive us for that. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that here for us at Wilkesboro Baptist, if there's nothing else you do for us, I pray, Lord God, that our time on Sundays and our time on Wednesdays together, you would help us to catch a glimpse of who you are truly. And let that shape our hearts, let that shape our lives, let that shape our faith, let that shape our worship, let that shape our prayers, let that shape our interaction with others. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do that for your glory and for your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.